Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 139. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I am recording this episode on January 18th, 2024, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. Here we are back in New Sweden. For those of you frantically scrolling back through the last few episodes looking for part one, please accept my apologies. You have to go all the way back to August 28, 2023 to find it. Worse, it's only called The Founding of New Sweden with no part one anywhere to be seen. Nevertheless, that was the real part one of the New Sweden story and is a solid pre-listen for this episode if you haven't already done, or if it's been, say, four months. Other useful episodes to listen to before this one are The Furry Geopolitics of the Eastern Seaboard, 1630s to 1660s, which dropped on Halloween 2023, and An Overview of the European Settlement of the Northeast Before 1650, from January 2nd of just this year. With the greatest deference to Swedes and Finns, most Americans outside of the immediate area of it, and I dare say many within it, have barely heard that there was a Swedish colony on the Delaware River for 17 years in the mid-17th century. Historians seem to have landed on only two consequences of New Sweden that have had staying power, beyond a few place names in the area between Philadelphia and the mouth of the Delaware Bay. Those consequences seem to be two. The first is the log cabin, the design of which was invented by the forest-dwelling Finns and imported to the banks of the Delaware in 1638. The log cabin was ideally suited to a forested country. No need to cut a straight trunk into planks, just notch it at the ends, connect them at right angles to make walls, and plug the gaps with mud or moss or clay to keep the weather out. It became such an iconic American image that 19th century politicians would brag that they'd grown up in one, much as today politicians claim to have come up from some condition of working-class adversity. Abraham Lincoln was legit born in one, and most Americans of a certain age built stuff with Lincoln logs, which was how we all learned construction before the Danes came along with Legos and substituted a new Scandinavian design for the old one. The other consequence of New Sweden is the indirect result of the work of historians. During the 19th century, Swedish scholars unearthed many of the old documents that record the years of the colony and produced histories of the project, which by then was more than 200 years in the past. The history of New Sweden became quite popular in Sweden, and that is said to have catalyzed the interest of Swedes and Norwegians, friendly reminder that the two countries were unified until 1905, to emigrate to the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. All told, more than a million Scandinavians came between the 1870s and roughly 1910. Mostly, they settled in the upper Midwest, nowhere near the Delaware River. So, maybe, we wouldn't have Minnesota nice if we didn't also have New Sweden. All of that legitimately invites the question, why is the history of the Americans podcast getting bogged down with such apparent trivialities? Well, apart from my compulsion to close out topics that I've opened up and my love of trivialities, 
Inside the 17 years of New Sweden, there were some good stories dug up by those Swedish historians. Their work was translated into English almost immediately, so much of it is easily available on JSTOR and elsewhere on the internets. The longest of these, The History of the Colony by New Sweden by Carl K.S. Springkorn, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, was translated by Gregory B. Keene and published as a serial in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography in 1883. As a matter of historical interpretation, Springhorn, I'm sure I am blowing that pronunciation, has no doubt been surpassed, but as a source of stories, he remains unsurpassed. When we last left New Sweden, it had been founded by an expedition led by its first governor, Peter Minwee, the man who'd notionally purchased Manhattan when he'd been the governor of New Netherland. Minwee died in a hurricane in the late summer of 1638, just after establishing Fort Christina on the site of today's Wilmington, while on a stopover in the Caribbean on the way home. New Sweden needed a new leader almost immediately. It would be some years before it would get a strong one. The Kalmar Nickel, on which Minwee had sailed home, escaped destruction in that hurricane. Minwee had been visiting on another ship, and that went down when the storm hit. The Kalmar Nickel arrived back in Holland on its way to Sweden in November 1638. It would be a year before the Swedes would organize the second expedition to the Delaware. The Kalmar Nickel was loaded up with supplies, perhaps 35 mostly involuntary settlers. The government couldn't get enough volunteers, so it coerced petty criminals and deserters from the army and such to fill the complement. And a new governor, Peter Hollander Ritter, a Dutchman. The second expedition would have a tough time clearing Europe and need to stop in the Netherlands for repairs. It would not arrive at Fort Christina until April 1640, by which time the surviving settlers had been on their own for the better part of two years. This would not be the last long interval between supply voyages to New Sweden. In the 17 years between 1638 and 1655, there would be only 11 expeditions to New Sweden, and only nine of them would arrive. Between 1640 and 1644, five expeditions adding up to eight ships would arrive, but in the 12 years after March 1644, only four vessels arrived. The longest gap would be six lonely years, and lonely they would have been in an alien world with few women of one's own nationality and less than entirely friendly neighbors. Minwee had left a man named Mons Kling in command at Fort Christina, and Kling had used the time productively. We do not know how many of the settlers died in that first year, but when Ritter arrived, there was no report that they'd starved or were in acute deprivation. They were no doubt cold and, you know, lonely. McCling had made good trade for furs with the supply of European goods brought on the first voyage. He'd taken advantage of his proximity to the local Inape people and had even traded with a more dangerous Susquehannock nation up the river in Pennsylvania. We know that he'd offered good terms, because Willem Kieft, then the governor of New Netherland, complained about Swedish competition in letters back to Amsterdam. Kieft's whinging was historically relevant, because, as attentive listeners know, New Sweden had been backed in part by Dutch investors. They would catch grief from their own countrymen for having done so, and by early 1641, 
the Dutch would pull out of the joint venture. The financial backing and executive leadership of Sweden's colonial project would then become entirely Swedish, even if individual Dutchmen, such as Ritter, would remain involved in the New World. Anyway, when the Kalmar Nickel would sail back to Sweden in the summer of 1640, it would carry a profitable load of pelts in addition to Mons Kling, who was going home to organize the third supply. It was also in the spring of 1640 that the English showed up. A colony of Puritans from New Haven arrived and settled on the eastern bank of the Delaware at today's Salem, New Jersey, on land claimed by both the Dutch and the Swedes. Irritated, as Willem Kieft was at the Swedes, recall that Kieft did something of a hair trigger when it came to getting irritated. He was a lot more worried about New English encroachment. The Puritans had a huge demographic advantage over the Dutch and were already pressing on New Netherlands territory from the east. Now they'd plop down on the other side of New Netherlands territory. If Kieft and Ritter agreed on anything, it was that English aggression shall not stand. In the 18 months between Ritter's arrival in the spring of 1640 to November 1641, the Swedes on the Delaware would again hear nothing from the home country. We do not know much about the population of the colony during this period, but it was surely well under 100. We mostly do not know their names, although we do know of a man named Anthony, a black Angolan. C.A. Westlager, author of New Sweden on the Delaware, does not report his condition of servitude or how Anthony came to be there. Nearly as I can tell, Anthony was the first black resident of today's Delaware. He's also a reminder that Africans and people of African descent had already spread widely in the Atlantic world. A third expedition was organized during 1641. Mons Kling and Johann Prince, who would soon become New Sweden's most consequential governor, were dispatched to recruit more settlers. Again, there were few volunteers. They hit upon the idea of rounding up Finns over whom Sweden then ruled. Swedish historian Sprinkhorn, writing in the early 1880s, described the Finns in terms that today we would regard as indelicate. Quote, the governors of Orebro and of Vermland and Dahl received orders to seize Finns in their districts, who were then continually overrunning Sweden, and by their injury of the forests and nomadic way of life, for some years past had caused the authorities much anxiety and were regarded with aversion by the settled peasantry. Back to me. The forest-destroying Finns, as they were then described, practiced a wasteful form of agriculture. Rather than laboriously cutting down individual trees, pulling out stumps, and preparing land for farming for the long term, they would burn down whole swaths of forest and plant crops in the ashes. The ashen soil, such as it was, would soon be exhausted, so they'd move on and do it again. Even before the Swedes ran around making speeches about climate change, they thought this was appalling. North America, with its seemingly limitless forest, seemed like a good place to send them. Bernard Balin, it must be said, had a much softer spot in his heart for the Finns. Here's how Balin put it in the barbarous years, in a discussion of the various ethnicities that made up New Sweden. Quote, the most distinctive group were Finns, forest folk, 
whose cultural and geographical origins lay close to Lake Ladoga near the Russian border and a Lapland in the north. Their way of life was peculiarly primitive by Western European standards, and they proved to have a greater affinity to the culture of the Native Americans than did any other Europeans in North America. It was they who would initiate a frontier style of life that would spread across the continental borderlands for generations to come. Back to me. In Balin's telling, the historical consequences of New Sweden are far greater than the mere log cabin, even with its attendant metaphorical energy. The Finns of New Sweden initiated an entire frontier style of life on account of their peculiarly primitive heritage. With the greatest respect to Professor Balin, not to mention Finns, that strikes me as a stretch. I would need to see more to believe that a couple of hundred people who lived on the banks of the Delaware set in motion an entire aspect of the American way of life. But the log cabin as a building technique is a much more plausible version of thin influence. It's easy to imagine that other Europeans, upon encountering one, would say, well, that looks like a fast way to build a sturdy house. Why didn't I think of that? Indeed, notched log construction became so popular that entire log mansions have been built on lakes in the Northeast, maybe in the West, too. In upstate New York, we call them Adirondack Great Camps. My great-grandfather, who was a lumberman in the Adirondacks, built one, but I bet he didn't know it came from the Finns. Anyway, if anybody has any more on the influence of the Finns on the American frontier, I'd love to hear about it. Shoot me an email. In 1642, the recapitalized new Sweden company selected Lieutenant Colonel Johan Bjornsson Prince as its next governor. He would serve more than a decade, and under him, new Sweden would come as close to prosperity as it would ever be. Prince's military career had ended ingloriously when he surrendered a Swedish garrison in Germany. Carl Springhorn reported the moment sympathetically, quote, beleaguered by the enemy, Prince was compelled to capitulate through the cowardice of the burghers and his soldiers, notwithstanding that he had lost only 10 men to the adversary's 200 during a siege of five days. Back to me. Whatever the merits of Prince's surrender, which was out of character, he was court-martialed, suspended from the service, and exiled into northern Sweden. Within less than three years, however, he was tapped first to help recruit settlers for New Sweden and then as governor. So there had to have been some recognition of his courage. Perhaps his prosecution was a scapegoating. And with enough time, Prince was, in effect, rehabilitated for the tough job in the New World. Bernard Balin describes Prince evocatively, quote, Like John Smith in Virginia and Peter Stuyvesant in New Netherland, Prince brought to bear on a fragile marchland community scrabbling for survival, the experience of military command, tolerance for brutality and physical hardship, and a taste for adventure in exotic places. During his forceful authoritarian governorship, the initial confusion and bewilderment was overcome and the settlement on the Delaware developed a distinctive way of life. It was also for Prince a time of personal frustration since he never received the reinforcements from home that he needed. Despite his increasingly urgent appeals for help, only two vessels reached him from Sweden after 1644. During the last six years of his governorship, there were none. In 
But Prince had no intention of conceding defeat and thus of destroying his reputation altogether. He had taken the governorship in part to recover from a sudden decline in his fortunes, and he looked forward to the reward of an appropriate appointment at home when his service abroad was concluded. A huge man, DeVries said he weighed over 400 pounds. The Indians called him Big Belly. Gotta say, pretty impressive in a world without big gulps or stuffed crust pizza. He had a fierce temper, drank heavily, and brooked no opposition. Very furious and passionate, John Winthrop wrote, always cursing and swearing. Prince, he said, had neither a Christian nor moral conscience. He treated the Puritans who sought entry to the Delaware trade like criminals, denouncing them as renegades and personally shackling them in irons. Briefly back to me. On June 27, 1938, the 300th anniversary year of the founding of New Sweden, President Franklin D. Roosevelt appeared in Wilmington to dedicate a statue of Johann Prince, back when presidents did that sort of thing. Being a witty guy, FDR rolled out a bit of fat-shaming doggerel to mark the moment. No governor of Delaware, before or since, has weighed as much as Johann Prince. Hard to imagine a president doing that today. We report, you decide. Back to Balin, quote, No one should have been surprised, though initially intended for the church by his highly placed clerical family and once a student of theology, Prince had become a career army officer, fighting with outstanding bravery in a long series of battles in Germany, some of them desperate, bloody encounters, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel. He was always a military man. In America, as in Europe, he thought like a soldier and lived like a soldier. For the last 27 years, he wrote from New Sweden, he had more often the musket and pistol in my hands than Tacitus and Cicero. And so he made no pretense of being able to reply in kind to the messages in Latin he received from Governor Winthrop in Boston. Back to me. This is a point worth focusing on for just a moment. Among educated European elites of the day, Latin was at the center of their formal education, because first, it was necessary to be a literate Christian, and then, to read the classical texts that resurfaced during the Renaissance. It was, in effect, a universal language in their world, and facilitated international correspondence between the people who knew it, who apparently did not include Johann Prince. Now, of course, the language that serves that function today is English, because it was the British and eventually the Americans who made our clumsy native tongue the world's lingua franca by the 20th century. The company gave Prince a long list of instructions, which were among the documents unearthed in the 19th century by Swedish historians. Prince was directed to prioritize the planting of tobacco. This would be difficult for the Swedes insofar as planting and especially curing tobacco is an art. John Rolfe had taken years to get it right, and he had help from Pocahontas. Nobody in New Sweden knew how to cure tobacco properly, but nobody in Stockholm knew that it was important to know how to do it properly. Further, instructions included the raising of cattle, cutting of timber, growing grapes, making salt, whaling, producing silk, and, of course, trading for pelts. 
prince was to assert Swedish sovereignty and actual control of the western side of the Delaware from Cape Henlopen to Trenton. He was to push out the Dutch, albeit with gentleness and moderation, insofar as the two countries were notional allies. Puritan English in the territory would be invited to swear loyalty to Sweden or be evicted. Prince and his wife and five daughters departed Sweden with a fourth supply, the ships Fama and Svanen, on All Saints Day 1642, and after a stopover in Antigua for Christmas and resupply, they arrived at Fort Christina on February 15, 1643, just as Willem Keith was waging his foolish war with the Indian groups on the periphery of Manhattan. Prince, mindful of his instructions, spent the balance of 1643 and the first part of 1644 bringing the Delaware River under Swedish control without actually going to war with either of the other European powers in the region. This was smart of Prince, because both the English and the Dutch substantially outnumbered the Swedes in the region, even if the Swedish military, honed as it was by the ordeal of the Thirty Years' War, was widely feared in Europe. Prince did this by doing five things in parallel. In no particular order, Prince built new blockhouses in tactically important locations, which mostly, although not entirely, deterred new English and Dutch settlement. He went after the new English settlement on the Jersey side of the Delaware Bay, basically just showed up with a bunch of armed men and demanded the English either swear their allegiance to Sweden, remember people took oaths seriously back then, or depart. He burned a couple of buildings to motivate a quick decision by those settlers from New Haven. He played the local Dutch against the English, at various times putting the Dutch up to stop an English settlement on the Schuylkill, an attempt to leapfrog the Swedes and the Dutch for furs coming out of Susquehannock country, and later, starting in mid-1646, displacing Dutch attempts to do the same thing. Prince spread rumors among the local Indians that the Dutch had, quote, evil designs against them, which was easy enough to do because of Keefe's War, about which long-standing and attentive listeners know a great deal. Finally, Prince played the Indian deed game, by which he documented the extent of Swedish lands and deeds executed by local sachems. This was not particularly meaningful to the Indians, who didn't think they had sold the land in the way you and I think of it, but such documents were seen as important to establishing the rights of one group of Europeans as opposed to another. Competitive deeding would go on for years. After early 1644, Sweden forgot about its project in the New World for almost three years. Sweden and Denmark had gone to war, and Sweden needed every ship it could get its hands on. Just as looming war with Spain had forced England to ban ships from sailing to the second Roanoke colony, Sweden requisitioned the ships of the new Sweden company, including the Kalmar Nickel, and fit them out for war. Nobody in New Sweden would hear any news from home, not even via New Netherland, from June 1644 to October 1646. The settlers, including Prince, would nonetheless persevere. Unlike the Roanoke colony, the settlers of New Sweden would not become another lost colony. They would survive and even build a lot of infrastructure. No doubt this was in part because of Prince's leadership. The expansion of New Sweden during the first years of Johann Prince's decade as governor turned on three big projects. The first was a 
new fort, which he called Fort Elfsborg on the east bank of the Delaware River, southeast of today's Newcastle. At that point, the river narrows to roughly two miles in width. That was more than double the effective range of the artillery of the day, but Fort Ellsberg nevertheless put Prince in a position to stop all but the most daring captains from sailing up the Delaware without his permission. Second, Prince moved the seat of the government, such as it was, from Fort Christina, today's Wilmington, to Tinicum Island, which sits in the river just across from Philadelphia International Airport. Today, the island is a long and skinny affair, but it's been cut off and reshaped by the river. In the 1640s, Tinicum was triangular and much larger, and today the land just south of the airport is its historical location. There, Prince built a governor's mansion, a church, and numerous buildings, some of which have been discovered by archaeologists. The compound was known as Fort New Gothenburg. Governor Prince Park in Tinicum Township right on the water, was the site of Fort New Gothenburg, and therefore the historical capital of New Sweden. As such, it marks the first European capital in today's state of Pennsylvania. Finally, Prince rebuilt Fort Christina in Wilmington, which had fallen into profound disrepair. Prince also built a series of log blockhouses around which Swedish and Finnish families settled, including at a place he named Upland, today's Chester, another he called Nya Vasa in King Sessing, which is on the Schuylkill west of South Philadelphia, and a third at Cross Island, which seems to have been near the mouth of that river a few miles north of Tinicum. The remarkable thing about all this work, which took two or three years, was that Prince accomplished it with only a handful of skilled artisans, perhaps as few as three practice carpenters and two blacksmiths. Presumably others learn these skills as they work to erect New Sweden's infrastructure during those years, but an impressive achievement nonetheless. In September 1646, the Dutch and the Swedes finally came into direct conflict on the Delaware. Andreas Hud, the Dutch commander of Fort Nassau on the eastern bank, set up a new fort and settlement on the western bank of the river, just north of the mouth of the Schuylkill. This was another leapfrogging move, an attempt by the Dutch to gain an edge on fur coming down that river from Susquehannock country, just as the English had done. Hud secured an Indian deed to the tract and erected the arms of the Dutch West India Company. Prince was outraged. He wrote a scorching letter of protest and dispatched soldiers to the site to tear down the coat of arms and chase off the settlers. A rift opened up between the Swedes and the Dutch in North America. It would eventually result in the end of New Sweden. Prince determined to bring the Susquehannocks, whom the Swedes called the Minkas, more firmly onto the Swedish side. He dispatched two of his officers and eight soldiers at least 50 miles. Carl Westlager suggests it was more than 100 miles deep into Susquehannock territory. If they traveled 50 miles up the Schuylkill, they would have reached roughly the site of today's Redding, Pennsylvania. If they went more than 100 miles and more toward the west, they would have reached Harrisburg. Regardless, they'd traveled where few Europeans had yet to go, with at least two notable exceptions. First, if they crossed the Susquehannock River, they would have passed over the path of Samuel de Champlain's intrepid explorer, Etienne Brulé, 
who had traveled down that river in 1615 and reached the Chesapeake. Second, Prince Men learned that some Dutch, nameless to us today, had fled New Netherland and had gone to live with the Minkas forever. In October 1646, the Sixth Supply Expedition reached the colony on a ship named Gailin Hayen, or something like that, in English meaning the Golden Shark, which thankfully is much easier to pronounce. Having taken quite a beating in the crossing, the Golden Shark would remain on the Delaware until late February 1647, when it would bring home a load of tobacco and a report from Prince. Regarding the tobacco, the colony had raised less than 7,000 pounds. Compare that to Virginia's output. As long before as the late 1620s, Virginia was exporting more than 500,000 pounds of tobacco a year. Sweden wasn't going to get rich on tobacco. Prince's report is written in the blunt style of the military man, much as John Smith had done in his letter back to the Virginia Company in late 1608. He does not have anything good to say about the Dutch. Quote, It is of the utmost necessity for us to drive the Dutch from the river, for they oppose us on every side. One, they destroy our trade everywhere. Two, they strengthen the savages with guns, shot, and powder, publicly trading with ease against the edict of all Christians. Three, they stir up the savages against us, who, but for our prudence, would already have gone too far. Four, they begin to buy land from the savages within our boundaries, which we had purchased already eight years ago, and have the impudence in several places to erect the arms of the West India Company, calling them their arms. Moreover, they give New Sweden the name of New Netherland and dare to build their houses there, as can be learned from the Dutch governor's letter, here annexed, and by my answer to it. In short, they appropriate to themselves alone every right hoist high their own flags and would surely not pay the least attention to Her Majesty's flags and forts, were they not reminded by cannon shot. They must be driven from the river, either by mutual agreement or by other means. Otherwise, they will disturb our whole work. The better to accomplish their intention, some of the Hollanders have entirely quitted the Christians, resorting to the Minkas, behaving with much more unseemliness than the savages themselves. I have written several times to their governor about all these improprieties and also caused their arms to be cut down, but it did not make any difference. They see very well that we have a weak settlement, and with no earnestness on our side, their malice against us increases more and more. Back to me. Prince requested three types of people, artisans, soldiers, and above all, unmarried women. He'd already grudgingly agreed to allow one of his daughters to marry one of his officers. No doubt he wanted more alternatives for the many bereft Swedes lusting after the other four. In May 1647, while Prince's report was making its way to Stockholm, there arrived in New Amsterdam a new man in charge of the Dutch in North America, the 37-year-old Peter Stuyvesant. He would be Prince's match in ways that Willem Kieft never could have been. Stuyvesant was also a minister's kid, well-read, wrote poetry, 
and had gone off to university for a stretch until he left for unknown reasons. Stuyvesant came off as smart, confident, and responsible, and quickly talked himself into a job with the West India Company. He worked his way up from petty bureaucracy on a remote island off the Brazilian coast to governor of Curaçao, Aruba, and Bonaire, from which position he learned of Willem Keefe's struggles in New Netherland. In 1644, three years before he arrived at New Amsterdam to replace Keefe, Stuyvesant led Dutch troops in a failed attempt to grab the island of St. Martin from the Spanish. Now let's go to Balin's description of that moment. Quote, Stuyvesant had become a tough, domineering politician and administrator, with broad experience in the brutally competitive Atlantic world and a trusted servant of the West India Company. The disaster at St. Martin, in which his right leg was smashed by a cannonball and amputated in the horrific procedures of the time, served to toughen him, more to secure his image as a grim, rough-mannered, short-tempered, ruthless commander capable of creating order out of chaos. But he kept his softer side. He never forsook his early intellectual life, maintaining a literary friendship with an English littérateur, exchanging verses with him from time to time. Friendly observation, academics love it when tough, short-tempered, ruthless commanders also write poetry. Stuyvesant did, Prince did not. Back to Balin. But to the colonists who greeted him in Manhattan in 1647, it was his grim, scowling visage, his commanding presence enhanced by his defiant display of his wooden leg and fierce pride and formality that stood out. Back to me. Prince would meet his match soon enough. For the moment, Stuyvesant heard the lamentations of the Dutch, who were upset that the Swedes were interdicting the best furs coming out of Pennsylvania, and he sent the usual protest to Governor Prince. Prince sent the usual reply. Stuyvesant would react differently than his predecessor, and that, plus an ugly shipwreck and some mean-spirited Spanish, will be the subject of the next episode. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple, maybe write a review, and following me on X and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.